Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 3, where we explore all things sports coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings for a piece of content that they're choosing, and we then discuss its application. Another three excellent guests join me this week, so please, could you introduce yourselves and tell us your current role? Thank you, Phil. Uh, my name is Laurie, and I live on the west coast of Scotland. I'm predominantly a coach developer. I mainly work with sailing and windsurfing, but I also work with some other sports as well. Hi, I'm Chloe Brown. Um, I'm based in Peterborough. Um, and I have a mixture of roles. I oversee a little bit of coach development, um, but I also oversee our girls' talent pathway um, in football and work with Peterborough United women as well. Hi, my name's Ellie Jennings. I'm doing a PhD at the University of Winchester, uh, where I also lecture on our sports coaching and sports coaching and psychology degree programme. Fantastic. It is an absolute pleasure to have all three of you join me. So um, big thanks for that and really excited to see what uh, what you're going to discuss and what we're going to get into. Um, just before we do do that, quick reminder for anyone listening to check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for links to all the content that we discuss and recommendations to other high quality content. So, uh, Laurie, we are coming to you first. What is it that you're going to talk to us about? I'm slightly fearful at this point because I've kind of failed miserably and that I was asked to bring a stimulus to the podcast and I really struggled, which I think might be a reflection of my tendency to try and find connections between lots of different things. So instead, I'm going to offer you a snippet of what I'm giving a lot of thought to at the moment and hopefully you can see some of the influencing factors surrounding that. So essentially, if we begin with um, an individual um whether that's um, an athlete, a musician, or someone in education. And that person is developing uh, or going through lots of little experiences, lots of micro interactions. And I love that within a lot of my work, I get to really geek out over those tiny little micro interactions. But essentially over time, uh, the accumulation of those small experiences contributes towards a broader developmental journey for that person. And of course, we hope within that journey that they are able to flourish and contribute to society out with the context in which they're developing. Um, And I guess what I'm giving a lot of thought to is when we look at those tiny micro interactions, those small experiences of that individual and the many surrounding layers that influence that. So typically we'll have in place um, systems that are in organisations that are designed to support those individuals. And those systems, those organisations will have multiple influences, whether that's um, norms, ideologies within that sport, whether that's social, political, cultural influences upon that system. And then uh, how do they cascade down uh, to, and not necessarily down, but how do they cascade to, to influence all those small, tiny experiences that person is going through? Um, And how do we better understand that? So the two questions I wrestle with the most at the moment is that within these systems and organisations, how can we create feedback loops to ensure that everyone is as close as possible to the experience that that individual is going through? And then on top of that, and this is probably more a personal uh, point for me, I feel at the moment so often quite pressurised into thinking in a fragmented way. So noticing the boundaries between individuals or social categories or even theoretical boundaries and, and, and uh, less, less looking at the whole. Um, so it's almost zooming in and out, fragmentation, wholeness. So um, that, that's where I'm at and I'm giving a lot of thought to that. It's coming up in lots of areas of my work. So apologies for the lack of one stimulus, but I will send through some links if it's helpful. No, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that, that broader picture, I guess, is is really nice. So um, I, I find the term feedback really interesting. So I, I'd be keen to unpick that a little bit first. Do you think our association with the word feedback 
causes some potential issues in some of those environments that, that people then start to think I have to offer an opinion it has to be insightful you know it, it could be forced upon me what are the downsides rather than maybe trying to create environments where they're just conversations that we're just embedding those types of conversations very naturally but we're not necessarily bracketing it or processing it in, in any kind of formal feedback way yeah lovely point phil and i think um yeah when i think of feedback at the moment less so on those little micro interactions but more so from a systems perspective so how do we get how do we put mechanisms and processes in place that allow the the experience of that individual to be um, fed back to the people within the organisation that are collectively as a whole trying to support that experience and that accumulation of experiences to be optimal for that person. So for example, as a coach developer, I get pretty close to the experience of athletes, but I work with a lot of performance managers who are so far removed. So we're trying to collectively better understand it, but that's hard, that takes a lot of time. Um, so I, a great question, and I think probably yes, it does. Chloe, Ellie, any, any thoughts on that? Is that something you've experienced in your environments, whether coaching, coach educating, lecturing? Is that something people get hung up on, or is it maybe not, not as much of an issue? I think it's something that maybe isn't focused on enough. Um, and actually, it can have a really big impact on those individuals and whether they can perform or not perform very well. And... I think it's really interesting, Laurie, that, that you say about it. And actually, have you sort of found that there are any um, major barriers to being able to find out this information, like either from the individuals themselves or from higher up the, the chain? Yeah, and I, I think a lot of the potential sits with coaches, a huge amount of it. So, um, you know, I, I work with coaches working in talent development pathway and performance end and often... I notice uh, almost perceived barriers to broaden the conversations that they're having. So they're, they're working with an individual who's working with multiple coaches who at some point is going to potentially move into the next stage of the pathway. And they're asking for conversations. They want to be better connected to the coaches across the pathway, but that can be really hard. And it doesn't just sit with the coaches, it sits within the organisation as well. It's complex. Yeah, and and... Systems can be busy, but are they effective? And are they fueled by the right information, which I think a lot of the time needs to be the experience of the individuals that we're all trying to collectively support? Yeah, I think it's something that I see quite a lot in my environment as, you know, I, I oversee the girls' talent pathway, but I don't actually coach a lot of the players. And, you know, quite often it's people who are coming to me to ask about players and I have to kind of find out that information from the coaches. and. I think you're right sometimes it's about the connection that you have with different people along that chain as to how far the messages go and whether you pick up those little informal conversations and you know you're saying about the the different micro interactions but I think that's not just from a player's perspective sometimes that's the micro interactions that the coach has or the performance director has or you know much higher up the chain all of those tiny interactions build up don't they do you think that oh go on Ellie jump in Sorry, I was, I was going to ask um, what you think about the, the role of culture within different sports and how that could potentially impact that feedback loop. So I come from a background of being in an individual sport and not being in a team environment where those kind of small conversations are between a coach and an athlete rather than being in a team environment and whether or not culture within specific sports can impact that. Um. Oh, what a wonderful question. And of course, I have, I don't know, I absolutely don't know, but the experience I have, it would lead me to believe that it massively impacts it. Um, yes, and, and I think that's one of the thing I, things I treasure most about the work that I do, and particularly being self-employed, I'm able to step in and out of different organisations and notice what connections are there or not and how I can support them or at times not support them and be a hindrance in those connections. Uh, uh, cultures of learning, willingness, readiness to learn, both on the athletes, coaches' um, point of view. And then, of course, 
often, not always, but often organisations are, you know, developed and administered in such a hierarchical way. So with someone who could be in a very influential influential leadership role, it can, it can massively impact on that. And, and information can sometimes be entirely top down if we think about the flow of it, when really we need it to be going up, down, left, right, and all round to, to really connect everyone. Do you think there are greater benefits to kind of outsourcing coach education, coach development in that sense? So the independent nature of your work, would that be more beneficial than someone that is working full time within those environments that has to then align with those kind of cultural, social kind of constructs and various processes and things in, in the system almost? Lovely question. And I would love to know where that comes from as well from you, Phil. Uh, yes. Um, I think being able to step into anything you notice, right? You, I was on a call last night and it was a, the coach developer played a video of a snowboarder and a gymnast collaborating together. And we were thinking about, you know, noticing the parameters and the norms of your sport through the lens of another. So I think being able to step in from the outside can be hugely powerful but equally at times I feel time poor because I'm not embedded in it full time I often feel I don't have the time to really give it what it needs to make those connections I, I guess it comes from I think from my experience people can be suspicious of someone that is working for an organization because they think that mm. they they're having to deliver the party line or they're having to deliver it that way um because it's their job and, and I just that kind of are they are they going to open up as much if there's not that trust and I appreciate as you say there it's a really good point around time if you are a full-time employee you may have more time with those so actually there, there's going to be benefits both ways but almost is it is it a way to overcome that barrier of you, you do just have no agenda is that openness that honestness honesty around I can tell you stuff I'm not going to tell someone that's going to be reporting further up that chain, whether it's positive or, or concerns in, in whatever respect. I just may, maybe the Nirvana is a little bit of both, but I, I don't know what that would look like. But. Yeah. I, I love the points you make, Phil. I think they're, they're bang on. And I think if you're con if you have those interpersonal skills, respect and you contract that process well, then it can be hugely effective. I've certainly seen people be very effective in that space. Awesome. I'm going to jump back to the very beginning where you just talked to kind of kind of the coach and then micro interactions and, and question for everybody. So please jump in. And I, I've definitely done this myself. How, how do we avoid second guessing those micro interactions? Is it, is it consistency in our behavior that is key as a coach? Or when I walk into a room or if I'm lecturing or whatever it might be, and I walk in, let's say I, I forget or I just don't notice to, to greet somebody. Do I need to be concerned about that? Is that something that I can then go, oh, no, I haven't done that. I need to rectify that. Or are there just so many of them we're not aware of them? If, if I do that every single time I walk into the room or on the field and I don't greet them, but I do other people, is it the, the formulation of that kind of behaviour that then causes potential rifts and issues with some of the athletes? I'm just wondering where where micro interactions sit and where our perspectives as, as coaches or educators sit within that so for me what I started to think about while you were talking Phil is actually the expectations between the coach and their players and myself as a lecturer and my students so what what do my students expect of me what do I expect of my students and as long as those expectations meet that might be where those small things are maybe over overcame overcome um so having the, the the trust and the openness with players when they join your team or when you teach a new group of students could hopefully maybe make sure that those types of things don't happen and just having that clarity and trust to have those open conversations about that type of thing how, how do you go about doing that? What does that kind of contracting piece look like at the beginning? Is that just to sit down and open an honest conversation? Is that exploring what their preconceived expectations are of you? How, what, what does that kind of look like in your world? Yeah, so I, I guess a mixture of everything you've just said. Um, normally, if I teach a new group of students, it's quite an informal chat um, because I would like the students 
to be open and honest with me and as a coach I would want my athletes to be open and honest with me and feel like they can say well as my coach I expect this from you so it's not necessarily um, maybe it should be more formal I don't know it's not necessarily a formal thing but it's just actually upon meeting each other upon meeting a new athlete making sure that roles are, are clear and you understand what each other is expecting to kind of overcome those those things I, I agree I think kind of those ground rules and the kind of initial expectations are really important but I also agree with you Phil that sometimes there are so many micro interactions that to remember to make sure each one is done individually every single time really equally for every person can be really really difficult um, and I think that as long as you try and maintain some consistency over a period of time and if you're building those relationships with the people you're working with um, you know, if if I forget to say hello to somebody one week because they snuck in after everybody else has come in, um, that doesn't necessarily have as much of an impact as maybe um, it might have done if my relationship was quite poor with them. So I think it's it is a real combination of all of the little interactions you have and building that positive experience rather than necessarily just one individual one that might make a difference. Um, and quite often, if you've built a good relationship relationship with players anyway um they'll they'll come and have those conversations with you you know if if they're not happy with something or you know they feel that you said hello to everybody else and not someone else I know we're sticking with that example but um you know if if I'd maybe forgotten to say hello to them and I built up that good relationship with them I'm sure that somebody would either come over to me and say hello or they'd make probably some sort of sarcastic remark knowing some of my players and be like oh I'm here as well and but you know I don't think that they would take it to heart because of the relationship that you've built before that sarcasm is definitely the great leveler isn't it just just brings everything back down how um how would you uh go around or go about kind of creating relationships with the people that are least like you because this is this is something I think about quite a lot of the time how how do I recognize straight away that people are more similar to me than others and then actually what's my process and, and be and I, I'm conscious I would never want it to feel forced that I'm kind of coming up and I'm speaking to you because you feel that I have to because I'm you know you're at the opposite end of whatever kind of personality spectrum there might be or, or your views on the game or anything else but just kind of what what would you maybe use to, to bridge some of those gaps great question and I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm an expert at this at all I, I think I've probably got a long way to go with this um, and there's always things you can learn because you always meet new people with different personality styles but I like to think I'm quite aware of where I am in comparison to other people um, so it might not be that we're ever going to be best of friends with somebody um, but I'm at least aware of that and I'm aware of maybe where we stand and, and where similarities are and and maybe where differences are and, and really try and play with some of those similarities but within my settings quite often we do one-to-one -one meetings with players across all the settings I work with um, just to kind of find out a little bit more about them where they're at in terms of their playing at the moment and, and how they're finding it and they can sometimes be quite Good openers to be able to find out a little bit more and build those relationships and as you said without it feeling too forced because maybe you're having those with everybody you know it, it's a great opportunity to just have a bit more of an informal chat away from the rest of the group where you've got a bigger group and people can hide or maybe when you're on the pitch and you're, you're doing your, your practical stuff um, they can be quite useful but yeah I'm I'm not going to say I'm I'm the expert at that at all. There's definitely a lot more. I'm sure that I can learn and pick up ideas from other people on that area. Laurie, go for it. Just a question for for Chloe or Ellie on that. Um, I, predominantly, I work in sports that are more in, individual than team. So thinking about the environment that a coach will create and all the different players that you might have in that environment and of course they're going to engage and respond to that environment differently dependent upon who they are as individuals how do you how do you tailor how do you tailor those environments to individuals when you've potentially got so many involved in them great question again um it, it's something within our girls talent pathway that actually we've really focused on over the last couple of years is around individualization um, and I think it's the message started to get through to the players and the parents and that seems to be the feedback we get a lot around that as well and 
um, we we found that almost kind of two separate sections. You've almost got the kind of informal discussions and and their personality and how they are as a person, and then you've also maybe got the technical stuff that you see on the pitch, or you have um, you know how they're performing physically and things like that, and and kind of trying to create an environment where you want to push them and challenge them in a technical, tactical, physical environment um, at the same time as maintaining kind of a little bit of, I suppose, the, the social cohesion with the rest of the group um, is it, sometimes quite difficult. And as you said, you have different individuals within a group with different personalities. And sometimes the louder personalities are the ones that come forward and they're the ones that are you, you notice more and you have more conversations with and it's sometimes in a big group the smaller the quieter personalities can go under the radar a little bit um, and I think that just needs to be a real conscious effort from the coaches to realize who am I actually talking to the most who have I had those conversations with I remember when I started coaching um, it was quite a while ago now that I did this and you know I was kind of progressing through and I almost each week made a little tally or a note of right this this week whilst we're walking to the pitch I'm going to purposely try and have a chat with these two players just so that I can make sure that across the season I'm, I'm speaking to those individuals and I'm finding out about some of those quieter players because they might not want to talk up in front of a big group um, but it's definitely not easy and, and the bigger the group size the harder it gets to to work with those individuals as well and make sure that you're, you're giving everybody the attention. I guess to add as well, I think this comes from knowing your players. So finding the time, whether that's before or after a session to have informal conversations, which can be, I guess, about anything from, I don't know, what's your favorite biscuit to what did you enjoy today at training? Um, and by having those informal conversations and building relationships, you're able to understand your players more, but I think, it's also equally important to think about the relationships players have with each other. So although, yes, they do an individual sport, they're still likely to go to training and train with a group of others. So taking a step back as a coach and thinking, OK, what are the types of things I can get these players to do together? What different players can I get to mix together and work on a particular task together who don't normally work together? And by improving the relationships within that group, I think also as a whole strengthens the team and that impacts your relationships with athletes as well. Uh, chocolate digestive. And if anyone says any different, that there's probably gonna be some issues. So that's fine. Um, just, just on that, I think something we've actually, again, it was a really good question and something we've played with a little bit this year was just making sure the players had enough work ons across the spectrum that whatever the content of the session, there was always something they could be working on and it was kind of putting the ownership on them to ensure that they were getting something out of it. Because I think previously there'd been conversations around, well, my, uh, let's say it's my, my kicking is my work on. But actually, well, if we're playing the touch game and there's, there's no kicking, then how can I work on it? And you're kind of going, OK, well, maybe we need to shift away from just having technical, tactical work ons and some of that kind of social psych stuff, um, physical stuff. I, I think it's having or them understanding there's a broad enough range doesn't matter what the content we've constructed as coaches for that session is you can always come away with hopefully not only the benefit of what the session was designed to get but also actually you can still be working on your own stuff at the same time so I, I, yeah and I, I think that's difficult I think some players probably still want to be spoon-fed quite a lot of stuff turn up you make me better and I think we've tried to just engage them in a more of a, a autonomous process i guess in terms of yes i i need to own my own development and my own progression and all these types of things so uh, very interesting awesome we're going to park that one there there's probably loads more we can go through but um we're going to move this on so chloe what is it you're going to talk to us about so this week I've, it's not something that's come up new this week it's something that i've had to it's been on my playlist for a little while and i've managed to finally catch up with um, was a podcast from the Player Development Podcast. Um, it was from November last year, um, and it was around coach communication um, with Stephen Rolnick um, as kind of the guest speaker. And I find coach communication a really important topic um, and actually ties in probably quite a lot with, with what you've been thinking about, Laurie, and, and the conversation we've just had. Um, 
but he, he kind of spoke about how communication is quite often described as a soft skill, but actually how important it is. Um, and that actually without communication as coaches, we wouldn't really be able to coach. Um, and that is, is there sometimes the emphasis put on good communication? And if you think back to maybe your coach development and coach education um, courses and backgrounds that maybe you've experienced, how much time is actually dedicated to how we say something um, or the language that we use with players? And they can make a really big thing. Changing one word or one or two words in a sentence can have a big impact on how players perceive something or take something. Um, so I, I, I find that quite interesting. And, and Stephen's come from, uh, he's done some work in a medical background, in an education background. Um, and one of the questions was around, how, how did you find, what did you notice when you first came into the sports sector? Um, and it was quite interesting that one of the things he said was that he found that praise is just thrown around, um, you know, it's, it's used so much and, you know, we kind of praise individuals and actually what's the meaning behind it, um, which was quite interesting. The main bulk of what he started to talk about was around motivational interviewing, um, which is an area that I've really looked into quite a bit. I'm quite into, into looking at autonomy and supportive coaching and how we get more out of players and, and around that area. Um, and for those of you that aren't aware of what motivational interviewing is, because I'll be honest, a few months ago, I probably wouldn't have been in the know either. Um, he described it as basically a style of conversation to help or spark change or growth or help address of any problems. Um, and the idea around motivational interviewing is that it's not leading, um, it's not asking a question to try and get an answer. And I think quite often when we're coaching, um, you, you, we're now seeing more and more coaches coming through and using a lot more questioning and, and trying to find out more from players and giving them the opportunity to feed back in and answer questions. Um, but quite often, what is the quality of those questions? And you'll do a lot of coach education and a lot of coach development, and it's around, you know, oh, you know, you should try asking more questions to your players and encourage them to get involved. But we don't really spend much time actually focusing on the quality of those questions and how we can get the most out of them. Um, and quite often you will then see coaches that have an answer in their head and they ask a question and they know what the right answer is and they're trying to bring their question so that the player gives them the right answer. Um, whereas motivational interviewing isn't about that and isn't about having the right answer. It's about encouraging the players or it could be the coaches you know if we're thinking about it from a, a higher level to think about what, what they want to change how they want to change it and why they want to change it and it's about really listening connecting with them in the first instance and then really listening to them and listening to their answers and, and trying to delve a little bit deeper um which is, is you know I, I think it's a, a very different way to what we quite often see a lot of coaches use on the grass um, it's fantastic in terms of, you know, empowerment that it gives players and the autonomy that it gives players to actually start running in an area that, you know, they, they want to run, run in rather than kind of just following what they're told and what we're going to work on. Um, and I think kind of one of the things he mentioned was around hearing themselves say what they're going to do and how they're going to do it and why can have a much bigger influence than somebody else telling them. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an area I'm really looking into quite a bit at the moment and, and wanting to learn more in and, and take more in. But it's just something that sparked my interest, really. Fantastic. Thank you. And, and just to back that up, there is um, they've done a load of webinars in uh, in lockdown that are all free to access as well. So you're definitely not no one is going to be short of uh, information to, to go away and explore this with. Um, I really want to pick up on the. He's talked about the, maybe the danger of coaches learning to ask questions because it's it's a competency or it's a tick box or it's the kind of, yeah, I guess the newer thing in um, coach delivery and, and that comes across in coach ed. Um, how big a flaw do you think that is in our delivery of coach development that we tend to drive some of these behaviours in coaching? Because from a theoretical perspective, they are good. But as with any theory, once it's actually applicable, once it kind of lands on the ground, coaches end up 
being just a bit tick boxy and and obviously that's a huge generalization some will take it on and they'll they'll do a fantastic job with it others will kind of just go and I've been told I need to stop telling people I'm going to ask questions but actually I'm almost telling them just through the question that I ask because there's only one right answer and, and I, I always refer to communication as like the 99% answer in 99% of the questions I ask, a player can say communication as an answer and they get a little pat on the back and a well done because they, they know that's the answer that a coach somewhere wants to hear. So how, how do you think we avoid those scenarios? I think in some instances, it's still good to ask those sort of questions because sometimes it's about checking understanding and making sure that players do understand and it may not necessarily be that discussion to improve. It might just be, I want to make sure that actually I know but what we've maybe spoken about in the session, you guys really do understand. But yeah, I totally get what you mean about communication and space is normally the other one that comes up. And I, I've been caught up myself and I've asked the question and somebody's turned around and said space and said, yep, great. I've gone on to ask somebody else a question. Um, and I had somebody mentoring me at the time who at the end said, oh, when you asked that question, did you see what their response was afterwards? And I said, no. He said, oh, well, they just shrugged their shoulders at somebody else as if they didn't know what the answer was and they just gave a generic answer. So yeah, you're right. Sometimes they, they give you those real generic answers. Um, but I, I do think there is a place still for it. So I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that and that that's a bad way of coaching, because I do think that there are still benefits for that of sometimes helping develop it understanding, but also for us as coaches to know where they're at and what they understand. Um, but I think if we really want to delve deeper and we want to get more out of our players, um, using techniques like motivational interviewing is a fantastic way of doing that. And I, I, I understand in terms of coach development why that's not always on courses, because you have a certain number of key messages that you've got to get across in a short space of time. And sometimes you don't have the time to explore this in a little bit more detail. And it might be more around how can we take these key aspects on courses and, and workshops that we run and, and maybe signpost to some of these extra webinars and resources that are out there because as you said there's so many things out there um that actually it would be great to, to kind of start linking and, and signposting learners to those points i also think that quite often when you start to introduce q a within coach development and um, that might be the first time that we're asking coaches to go and do that so to suddenly spring that we want you to change your coaching practice and we also want you to go and ask all these questions and do it in this much detail um is a big ask and um, so i think it's it's potentially those baby steps we've got to take um but it may be more around the signposting because otherwise you're going to end up with coach education courses that are so big and, and so rich which are fantastic but at the same time can somebody take all that information away and actually apply it and use it in one go Pro probably not um so I, I think it is a bit of a mix it is it is important i think to have those those mixtures of different types of questioning it's about using the right ones at the right time and i just think that this is almost an added layer um, of depth that we can get to with our players and an extra support that we can offer them how much do we think that becomes around coaches relinquishing control and I would say control rather than power. I, th I think people can kind of get hung up on the power dynamic in coaching, but there's a, I think there's always naturally an element of the players will look to the coach for that control in terms of that's where the plans come from. That's kind of the imagined future. You know, all these things kind of culminate in the coach being the driver of a lot of this. And I wonder whether that kind of aligns with that it's their picture and if that's not co-created, does and then again, it's not to say it's, it's always got to be co-created or it's always got to be led by the coach. But actually, does does somebody kind of going with leading questions? Is that a a driver towards? I need to move you to this point for us to then move on to X and Y and Z. And and actually, how do we maybe get coaches to just be a little bit more comfortable? And I, I think would probably apply to teaching and lecturing and stuff as well. And just be a little bit more comfortable to step back and go. I've got no real agenda in this lecture or this session. I'm really happy for this to just be an exploration and it can go almost a little bit like this podcast. Do you know, if I came in and said, no, this is our topic and we have to stick to this, may, maybe we get a deeper discussion, but also we miss a lot of the other opportunities. So I'm wondering what your kind of collective experiences of that would be. I think it'd be interesting to hear, um, from your experience in a moment earlier around kind of education but I think from a, 
a coaching point of view, sometimes it's the expectations are external that sometimes influence how we want to coach. And actually, if I turned up as a coach and I had a group of parents watching and I just turned up and said, right, you guys crack on and come and ask me some questions if you want to. And maybe we'll have a bit of a chat as we go through. Um, the parents perceptive might be, well, you're not actually coaching them. You're not helping them. You're not telling them what to do, um, which is is definitely, uh, I think, a big barrier and a big sort of psychological barrier to the coaches, maybe more so than the players. Um, but it'll be interesting, Ellie, to hear from you and, and what your thoughts are around education. Yeah, so this is a really interesting topic, actually, because at the university, we spend a lot of time in our practical modules teaching students the how-to skills of coaching rather than what to actually coach. So motivational interviewing, asking questions, those types of things are really important. And I think what becomes clear is when we've got students who have experience in coaching compared to students who don't have so much, whereby asking questions is something maybe quite new um, and a little bit scary because it does open you up to maybe not knowing the answer that's going to come back or where the answer is going to take you and being pushed out of your comfort zone you know quite quite slightly like that can be maybe a bit fearful for students so that's where okay why don't you not suggest try to use leading questions but the questions that less experienced coaches will start to ask maybe are leading but I think that's a good thing that they're starting to experiment with using questions rather than being um, an instructional coach and it's moving them slightly away from their comfort zone but like you said when do you introduce things like motivational interviewing which can take away your kind of comfort and control over what happens next and when do you feel um, like you're experienced enough or ready to kind of deal with what comes back at you so if I reflect on my own experience as a lecturer, when I started teaching, I probably was more instructional and a bit nervous about um, kind of walking into a lecture room and saying, okay, we're gonna discuss this and open it up to the room. But I think that's where experience and if we touch upon feedback again from mentors, et cetera, can help coaches be more open to using things like motivational interviewing and feel comfortable to do so but I think right at the start of your journey as a coach it can be quite maybe daunting. Laurie what would that look like from a coach education or coach educators perspective for you so if I'm the I'm the coach that's a little bit uncomfortable stepping outside of my comfort zone and I I want to ask questions that I have a knowledge of how how do you go about expanding my horizons or nudging me in a way that means I'm, I'm a little bit more comfortable then with being able to say actually I don't know uh, you know I, I don't have all of the answers and again kind of challenging that perception that the coach is this all-powerful all-knowing being that, that that has to have that all the time. Mm, this is such an exciting topic that we're discussing here and one that's really current for me I'm trying to calm myself here. Uh, yeah um, to answer your question Phil which I think was in and around being feel safe environment in a way um, and that's is not always a, trying to think of my own beliefs around this you know typically whoever I'm working with whether it's an individual or a group there's a notion of togetherness so you bring a set of knowledge skills and experience and as do I and therefore it's another perspective and it's the space between us that we can both grow um, Going back a step to Chloe's point around the external influences on what is coaching and what are the expectations around it and that being athletes, coaches, parents, governing bodies, uh, sport as a whole, you know, we, we talk about a lot with sailing and windsurfing coaches at the moment, this rising tide of questioning that we've seen over recent years. And do coaches, when they're including myself, when we ask questions, what is the purpose behind it? And is a question fit for purpose in terms of the individual that you're developing, their current state in that moment, uh, the objectives for that session, the question within the broader, broader developmental journey, their age and stage at that moment in time. And I think that for me, what was lovely, you know, we've seen more of a, 
I lean towards what I think, and again, I'm, there's far better people to engage in this discussion than me, but leaning towards educational psychology and um, Ed Cope and Chris Cushion's paper around reconceptualizing direct instruction for me was just a big shift and a really lovely shift and I think it's fascinating we have a choice and at what moment in time is it right to say nothing to ask a question to give some direct instruction there's so many choices and I think it's just giving supporting coaches to think more critically about that choice that they have I know that's a great answer critical choice I think that's that's really pertinent it's also actually I guess we're only one half of that relationship. So is, is it really about delving into what the players want as well? And, and maybe the, the sceptic in me kind of goes, well, a lot of them would turn around and go, could you just tell me? Because it's it's the easier way to do it. And, and I've definitely had that. And you've kind of gone through that, almost that questioning funnel of it's, it's quite open-ended and then it's kind of like, mm, they're not getting this. Okay, well, I need to be more and more specific. And you're kind of four or five questions in and there's still that blank look and you're just like, and at the end they just go, could, could you just tell me? Cause that would have probably saved, you know, the last three or four minutes and I could have got there a lot quicker. And I'm just like, you, how do I then recognize quicker that they genuinely don't know or actually are they playing the game and just going, if I pretend I don't know, then they'll tell me, then I can just get to the answer quicker. And, and that whole dynamic I just find fascinating. And as I, I definitely don't have any solutions to it, but I think it's probably comes back to that relationship piece around contracting at the start and the expectation from both and, and the level of the player and all the contextual factors of if, if they've hardly played the game and that, that would be a number of the players I coach at the moment, I would be giving way more direct instruction than I probably ever have because they, they literally just have no concept of what you're talking about if you start questioning. So actually, I'm, I'm better off just going, here's one way, let's find another way in, in five, 10 minutes. Let's, let's just keep increasing that kind of bank of knowledge so that later on, hopefully, they can then start you know, helping you connect the dots, I guess. I think also within that, we need to consider when we ask the question and when we expect the answer. Sometimes we think that we should ask a question and then get the answer straight away. And actually, sometimes asking the question at the start of maybe a practice or, you know, giving them a chance to then go back out on the pitch and try it and come back in in five minutes time and say, you know what, actually, this is what I think the answer is, um, is sometimes a really powerful way of working because you're not expecting that answer immediately. They've got a bit of thinking time, but they can also go and apply it and understand it, which sometimes can overcome that bit of a barrier of I don't know the answer. Um, because you've given them an opportunity to try and problem solve and see what comes back. I love that. It just sparked a thought, and I, I can't remember who presented this, but I, I, it was brilliant at the time and around just, just unanswered questions. How often do we, do we finish a team meeting or do we finish a training session with, I'm going to ask this, but there is no expectation we're ever going to revisit it. It's just going to linger with some of you and it will probably obsess some of you, hopefully. But in other ways, some of you will bin this as soon as you walk off the park or out the room. So it doesn't matter. But just, you know, pre-planning something where you're just going to go, no, it's a question. We don't have to have an answer. Maybe it's unanswerable. Maybe we need to ask more unanswerable questions and and develop that um, that insight and that kind of exploration around some of those pieces I'm not sure uh, I'm conscious of time so again we'll, we'll kind of park that one there and we'll, we'll move it on so um, Ellie we're coming to you what is it that you're going to talk to us about so the topic that I would like to talk about today um, what well, is something that was introduced to me last week by a colleague of mine um, and it's a brand new charity called Stormbreak and essentially their aim is specifically in primary schools, but I think it's going to be interesting to talk about it in the context of coaching, um, but using movement for mental health. So how can we get young people participating in physical activity and moving their bodies for the explicit reason of promoting mental health? Because quite often when we think about physical activity, the first thing we think of is, okay, well, there's, there's physical benefits and the side effects of that is that it will improve our mental health and well-being. So slightly changing the focus of getting young people to move their bodies to improve mental health and how 
understanding or learning about this charity last week kind of ties in with a lot of current conversation around what children should be doing when they return back to school um, after or since the coronavirus pandemic. So there's a there's a lot of discussion around children having a summer of play and how being able to go out and play with their friends at school, um, you know, do physical activity, uh, move with their friends, enjoy it, will be essentially more beneficial for them than catching up on things that they've not learned. And the kind of argument behind that is how can we expect young people to um, learn effectively if they have poor mental health than they did, you know, this time last year, because young people have been locked up, they haven't been able to participate in physical activity with their friends, they haven't been able to enjoy that. So what is the impact on their social development as well as their kind of mental health and wellbeing? Um, which I think is obviously an important topic in itself, but within the context of coaching, you know, hopefully soon there'll be lots of coaches who will be able to start up training again. Um, and in grassroots sports, what will that look like? Will that be teaching sports specific skills or will that be centered around play and fun and um, just getting back into it and getting back used, getting used to, or children getting used to being around their friends again um, and, and what, what will coaching sessions look like post pandemic? So that's the topic that I, I would like to talk about. Awesome. I, I'm going to start with a little bit of a philosophical question. Do you think that there's separation of mind and body starts to become a little bit of the issue that, that we talk about mental health and physical health? Are they, are they all not just the same? Uh, I, I can understand why we start to run down those kind of routes because we have specialists in them and there's, there's certain language that helps those people professionally, I guess, but I just wonder if we start to create all these separate elements, do we then get a little bit caught up in, well, this solution ticks that one and then how do we link them? Should it not, we kind of just maybe taking that, that whole approach to, we just need to make sure people are healthy, whatever that looks like as an all encompassing kind of term. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. Um, and actually when we consider I think I would like to use the term well-being when we consider a young person's well-being that does, at least for me and my understanding, encompass physiological health, um, psychological health. And the reason, I guess, so, so I guess going back to what I've I already mentioned, a lot of the time when we think about participating in sport, it's for the physical, it's for the physical benefits. Whereas why can't we, or why shouldn't we, especially at this time, um, put mental health and well-being first and foremost beyond learning sports-specific skills, for example. Um, but I guess depending on individuals' understandings of um, well-being, mental health, and whether or not people think they are separate things or all together, that will that will impact on what we do in our sessions. But I think the kind of I think the important message is that instead of getting straight back into sport, what should our expectations be? What can we do to support young people and understanding that some young people might have had a, an entire year or a, a large amount of months away from their sport. Therefore, when we come back, what, what is the most important thing to, to, to look after or develop? Um, and in this case, looking at research around young people mental health etc as coaches is our responsibility in addition to PE teachers or pe uh, teachers in primary schools to actually think first about okay what can we do to help their help develop young people's well-being and develop their social skills again and sport and physical activity is a great tool to do that and to, to utilize to, to, to help improve that. Ellie I thought that was really a couple of bits you, you kind of said in there around the responsibility of people and I completely agree I think it is important and maybe that split might be more rather than focusing on the skills it might be more around just a bit more free play which you know it might help but I, I'm, I suppose I'm interested to know who, who do you kind of see as having that overall responsibility because I know you said about PE teachers coaches etc 
we all know that going back, there will be some coaches that maybe just don't have the confidence to just open up a, a free play environment and things like that. So actually, where does where do we maybe put that responsibility? Is that with the national governing bodies to maybe say, actually, this is what we're going to do, or we're going to remove competition so that it takes away the seriousness and we're just going to encourage you to organise some little mini games and, and restructure things. Does that sit with the NGB or actually does it sit with the coaches as an individual to pick that up? I think that's a great question. Um, I think my answer would be, I think it's everyone's responsibility. Um, I would say that it's important actually, and one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about the charity storm break is because there are a lot of resources out there for coaches to, to, to use and look at if they aren't comfortable with this idea around, okay, well, this is putting me out of my comfort zone a little bit. How do, how do I actually support the mental health and well-being of young people? Because we talk about it a lot and we all know that we should be doing that, but actually, how do we action that? What can we do? Um, and looking at resources, I mean, you know, governing bodies, there, there should be resources out there already that say, you know, within physical activity, these are the types of things that go towards supporting young people's mental health and well-being. One of those huge things is, um, is you know, with play through enjoyment, with participating in physical activity with friends and the relationships you build with your teammates, with your coach, et cetera, and how that can impact well-being. But as well... Going back to Stormbreak, they have loads of um, video resources and ideas of activities that, um, again, primarily for PE teachers, but there's no reason why a coach of whatever sport couldn't look at those resources, use them, adapt them, um, and then at least they could have some confidence that it's that they're doing something which is supported by, by research and developed by, by, by somebody else if they're not particularly confident within that area. Do you think that's maybe one of the reasons coaches aren't overly confident in this area? Like, they're not psychologists, they're not trained psychologists, then they're not there to, to get under the hood and start tinkering with stuff and psychoanalyzing people and doing anything that they have no experience of and, and potentially could be quite damaging. So, and again, I wonder whether that comes back to talk about separation. I think there's separation in roles and, and what you're experienced and qualified to, to do, but actually how how they just shift that to being a little bit more focused on the player, even if that's just kind of asking the players what they want to do a little bit more often. I think there'll be loads of coaches that do that really, really well, but actually in this sense, kind of take away the, you're at a coaching session. Is it me just asking you as a group and saying, what, what do you want to do today? If you just want to sit on the grass and chat, then that's a really great use of an hour and we don't need to get a ball and do a load of other stuff and play. We can if you want. Do you know what I mean? Is it almost just kind of putting it back and going, remove the context of what you think this environment is, just tell me what you're feeling and what you want to do? Yeah, and I, I guess, um, I think maybe sometimes people are a bit, nervous on what to do when people start to mention things like mental health and well-being because they are large topics I mean the first question that you asked me is essentially well, what does that actually mean um, and because they're such large topics it can be a bit maybe a bit fearful around okay well I don't want to do something wrong um, but what do I do that's right and how do I action that but by breaking down and understanding the things that coaches can do within their sessions so like I said working towards social cohesion, team cohesion, getting your players used to being around each other again, playing again. Like you say, giving them choice, working towards an autonomy supportive environment, which we briefly touched on earlier. And those, I guess, small types of things, but if you have a, that coach-athlete relationship, you would hope that your athletes would be able to come to you and say, actually, can we do this today? Or, you know, I'm not really feeling up to it. Um, can I do whatever um but I think you know at the end of the day what what's the worst thing that could happen if you if you ask an athlete or you ask their parent you know is everything okay I've, I've noticed whatever maybe the worst thing they could say back is it's none of your business um but at least you said something 
Yeah, I think that's brilliant. How how much, and Chloe, we, uh, Ellie, we touched on this um, in our kind of conversation, the build up to this, but how much do you think there is a danger around a catch up culture? So uh, and I, I don't have kids, so I haven't experienced the, the kind of the homeschooling pressures and any of that type of stuff. But from everything I would now read, there seems to be a lot of kind of terminology around we need to catch up and we need to accelerate this and they, they've missed a lot of stuff. So how do we overcome that? Is this a case of we just need to go, it is what it is? It's impossible to catch up or accelerate learning. We just need to understand that there could be ramifications further down the line. Or do we really need to spend a load of time and effort and energy on trying to bridge the gap that, that people think is potentially going to exist? Yeah, I'm happy to jump in here. Uh... Yeah, and I, I suppose that almost links back to some of what I was talking about in the beginning, which is this, you know, we education has a curriculum, right? So I've got a couple of kids and we're all discussing, well, at the end of this stage, whilst recognising that everybody develops at different rates, ideally what we were looking in general for the kids to be able to do at this at the end of this year. And... Uh, and, and how much rigidity is in that. And so one of the influencing... Um, factors over my story at the beginning was this book that I've loved reading and it's called uh, The Connected Curriculum for Higher Education. And so whilst age and stage is really helpful in having a shared mental model of the intentions of development long term, um, there's so much out with our control and kids will have taken so much from this experience that they may not have otherwise got in their educational experiences. But my worry is what, what might the messages that we've been sent that are have implicitly been experienced by children or teenagers or adults in university about what learning look feels and sounds like because it has been so sedentary over the past year um, and I, I, I guess can I form that as a question Ellie um, you know what are your views on that have we has the will the has the past year changed the way that we think about what learning looks feels and sounds like yeah, so I think um, as we as, as you mentioned that you know you would hate for your children to think that learning is sat at a computer. Um, I guess for me, doing podcasts like this where I talk about the importance of physical activity and play and the benefits of that, I think are important. And I think it kind of comes down to you know spreading the word that sitting in a classroom and and learning facts and dates isn't necessarily the only way that children learn um, and learning isn't just about again learning facts and figures it's about their social development it's about development of their mental health and well-being playing with friends developing or understanding what trust is and what trust looks like being able to share um, and returning back to school and having time to play isn't just playing Play is a form of learning and a way of, of learning a, a breadth of loads of different things. But without under without understanding that that's what play is and can be, um, maybe we will slip back into, okay, you do need to go back into the classroom and practice and whatever. Um, and I think, again, talking about this within the context of coaching, um, as coaches, our athletes or our participants are coming to our sessions, not to sit down and learn like they would in a classroom. They are coming to participate in sport and physical activity. Therefore, if we understand the importance of play and movement and what that can do for their for other areas of learning, if you like, um, is really important. I think that answers your question. <laughs> I think that tees up really nicely. I wonder if the alternative is true from a coaching perspective. So actually, has this shown us that you can coach online. You don't have to be on a field with, or a court or whatever it might be with, with the whole group at the same time. There is a really effective way to be delivering uh, small group sessions, one-to-one, -one, whatever it might be in from a kind of sporting perspective. And actually can that supplement or, or kind of boost your delivery by the time you get to the grass? So is that maybe me now thinking, okay, we're gonna do like a 20 minute Zoom session every couple of weeks just on some technical tactical stuff that 
I don't then have to stand with a whiteboard in the changing room and deliver to the group. I can do it far more effectively with some videos or with some clips or some other things. So I, as much as I think from an educational perspective, it's probably maybe a, a downside. I wonder from a coaching perspective, actually, is it a positive we found and, and had to spend quite a lot of time exploring how to do this effectively, that then when we get the freedom that we did have, we, we don't just kind of abandon everything that we were doing here because I do think there's been some really, really good stuff, certainly around player analysis and kind of feedback and these types of things. I'd hate to just see all of that go out the window just because we can run around again. So I'd be interested again in, in your guys' experiences of where you think that might lead. So I, I agree with you actually. So my experience as a lecturer teaching at the university, being able to cover some of the more complex hard topics online has actually been really valuable for students um, because what it means is that they can watch it at their own pace if they didn't quite catch something they can kind of go back and replay it and when you do do those kind of practical sessions you can get in there you know that everyone has been whether or not they did listen to the to the lecture um, everyone has had that experience the same experience and they've been able to go back to it make sure they understand it so they will turn up with that similar knowledge and like you said instead of standing on a field with whiteboard you're able to prepare things and make sure that you deliver that message as explicitly as you can i i agree i think that's it, it's it's useful in terms of we, our understanding of learning and teaching online has improved but i also think that um you know coaches in general have maybe started to get the hang of technology a bit more i know that some of my coaches have been able to play around with creating videos and things like that that they maybe wouldn't have done before that has now given them the confidence to be able to produce those additional resources but also the technology around us has improved and it's improved so rapidly over the last year that what we can now do is massively different from what we could do before so I think we've got a lot more resources at our disposal. I think that everybody is starting to feel more confident on those resources. Whereas a year ago, if I'd said, right, we're going to do an online Zoom session, everybody would have been going, well, A, what Zoom? B, how, how do I log on to this thing? What do I do? How, what buttons do I need to click? How do I, oh, I don't think I like that. I might not do that. Um, whereas now the confidence is there. So if I said, you know what, we're going to do a 15, 20 minute Zoom call, around this bit of analysis or around this, you know, we're going to do a mini psychology workshop or whatever it is. I think that people would feel happier and more confident to log on and do it. And it would take less time out of a coach's day to do it um, than it might have done a year ago. Is there an irony in you saying the technology's improved us having just got back on the call after my Zoom failing? There's that, that's, yeah, <laughs> something in that, but. <laughs> you were just getting a digestive, weren't you, Phil? That's very true. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I keep them within reach. We're all good. I don't have to get up to get them. Um, fantastic. Uh, I think that's a really nice point to kind of pause this bit and um, just now jump into what are your recommendations for people to to kind of go and, and have a think about, have a look at, explore some stuff. What, uh, what else might you be kind of directing people towards? So uh, Laurie, we'll come to you first. Following my theme and not actually <laughs> answering the question question make connections read something where does it take you explore out with sport in other contexts uh, and don't just read listen to podcasts engage in discussion with people gather as many perspectives as you can because i think it will ultimately enrich whatever that initial stimulus was that that sparked the the journey from that point wonderful um shameless self-promotion as as a podcast host yourself do you want to just give people a nudge to that podcast and explain what it is and what you talk about because i really enjoy it and i think loads of other people would as well if they haven't so um i feel like a bit like the bbc now there's no you know other podcasts are available but definitely pitch yours please that's so kind phil and it's great to be on yours not only because it's a great podcast, but also you've been a huge supporter of ours. So thank you. We are the Coaching Discourse podcast with Derek O'Riordan and Anna Stodder. We talk about all things coaching and we also talk about beer. Two reasons to get on that straight away. Coaching and beer. I mean, what, what's a better combination? Fantastic. Uh, and that's available on iTunes, Spotify, everywhere, isn't it? And available on Twitter as well. So um, please do check that one out. 
Fantastic. Uh, Chloe, what are you suggesting people kind of check out? Uh, there's a lot of resources out there around motivational interviewing, so I'm not going to go into those. But actually, um, I think it's something that we've maybe touched on throughout as we've gone through is around culture. And it's a big area I've looked at. Um, so kind of one within a sporting context, um, which was um, the Barca way, I found really interesting as to how Barcelona um, kind of created their, their culture within their club. But the second one, kind of an, an external example around Creativity Inc., which is around Pixar and how they created their environment to allow people to be creative and, and input things in. And so they're probably the two books from me that I would recommend people to go away and have a little look at, particularly if they're interested in that, that culture and environment. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Ellie, what about you? Uh, so I sent, I sent you, Phil, a, a paper, which I assume would be in the description box below um essentially the the paper is a review paper um about actions that coaches can make to support mental health of athletes so if you're not particularly sure on what you can do to support your athletes mental health there's uh, there's a table within the paper which essentially sums up loads of different things that you can do to um support and promote mental health of athletes fantastic uh, yep, the, the, the link to the paper will go with the blurb as well and the link to the Stormbreak website will be on there so people can kind of go and uh, definitely check out all those resources. Fantastic. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. This has been a wonderful way to uh, to sit and chat and learn some stuff about some some areas that I'm definitely still trying to explore and develop and work on as a coach and I think that are really pertinent in the current climate. So thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. I'm going to round up the roundup. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to my guests for their time and contributions to an excellent discussion. As we've said, links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. Please subscribe, like and share. As always, I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well.